This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, and welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Benjamin Wu, and I'm a lung microbiome researcher at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And with me to discuss the lung microbiome is Dr. Robert P. Dixon, also known as Bob, who is an assistant professor from the University of Michigan. Um, Just to give you a little more background, uh, Dr. Dixon graduated from St. John's College. He got his MD at Duke University. He then proceeded to do an internal medicine residency at the University of Washington, became chief at Harborview Medical Center, and then finished his fellowship in pulmonary critical care at the University of Michigan, where he continues on as faculty. Uh, And he currently, his current status is an assistant professor. Um, He studies integrative translational research from molecular characterization of respiratory microbiota to animal models uh, and prospective uh, trials in human subjects. He has a particular interest in acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, lung transplant, and what makes up the healthy respiratory tract microbiota. He currently is supported by the NIH. He's also a member of the Michigan Institute of the Clinical and Research, Clinical and Health Research, and he's part of the University of Michigan's host microbiome initiative. Thank you so much for joining me. And I and is there anything I missed in your biography? I just wanted to make sure. No, no, no. That's very uh, kind. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. And um, so we wanted to bring you on to kind of discuss, in general, sort of broad, our broad understanding of the lung microbiome. It's been relatively a new field in um, that's gained prominence in the last few years, and so we kind of just wanted to understand what the perspective was from a lung microbiome researcher. And I wanted to start off just by asking you, how did you get interested in studying the microbiome? Sure. Well, my, my personal uh, origin story with lung microbiome is that clinically, I, I always knew I was drawn to internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care. And I loved the pathophysiology of critical illness. And that was where my heart was. Heart was. But I also always enjoyed microbiology, and there's a lot of relevant microbiology in the ICU, both in terms of infections and non-infectious diseases. Uh, And um, to to this day, my my clinical time is either in the ICU or in the county TB clinic, so I have not gotten too far away from the bugs in in the clinical space either. Um, But I came to Michigan in 2011, and it was a fortuitous time. So the, uh, the investigator who became my mentor, Gary Huffnagel, had quite recently pivoted his lab away from uh, fungal infections to what, what we now call the lung microbiome. So using sequencing techniques to characterize bacteria in respiratory specimens. So they had just published one of the very early uh, lung microbiome papers that's looking at bacteria in the lungs of patients with COPD and uh, healthy smokers. And right. it just struck me as an enormous opportunity. I, I knew I wanted something translational. I, I had dabbled in bench research, I had dabbled in clinical research, um, and I wanted something that let me have it all. Uh, and when I learned that I could do the type of uh, analyses, ask and answer the kinds of questions that this, these approaches would 
um, equip us to to get at it um, was just a perfect fit for me. So it was a a, a really nice intersection of a fantastic mentor and uh, the dawn of a new field that was um, just thrilling at the time and remains very exciting to me now. That's great. Um, you know, it is very, very young and a lot of people have sort of, um, you know, downplayed its impact, but why should people in pulmonology and critical care take interest in things like the microbiome? What do you think its application can be in these fields? Sure. Um, there's, there's sort of some uh, concrete logistical on the ground answers as far as how these are going to translate into our practice, which I think is sometimes what people want to know, when is this actually going to drive care? Uh, and then there's the sort of more high-minded pathogenesis, when is this going to change our understanding of disease? I, I think I have answers for both of those questions. For the first of those, um, these, these techniques we use were never really meant for clinical diagnostics. They're never really meant for on-the-ground use in the unit or in the clinic. Um, so it's not a surprise at all that, you know, 16S RNA gene sequencing, uh, which is the sort of workhorse assay that you and I and the rest of the field have used for the last decade, you know, that, that's never been a practical assay for studying patients in front of you. Um, and believe me, the irony is not lost on me that I go from my lab where I'm using, you know, these molecular techniques, these exquisitely sensitive and specific diagnostic tools, but then I go to the ICU and we're still waiting, you know, 24 to 72 hours for, for culture results and sensitivities. Um, so that's, that's why the on the ground um, translation hasn't occurred, but that's, it's a really exciting time for that because we now do have sequencing platforms that can be single use for single specimen on demand. Uh, and that's one thing my lab is working on is how do we translate these sequencing technologies to, in, in, the, in the short term, diagnose infections faster, um, just find pathogens and predict their antimicrobial susceptibility faster than we are currently relying on. So um, decrease our dependence on enteric antibiotics. Um, but also because we do think that um, the microbiome is this enormous source of heterogeneity in our patients. We live in an era where we don't like lumping anymore. We wanna, we wanna sub-phenotype diseases. We wanna understand specifically what it is about this asthmatic patient or this septic patient or this patient with ARDS that discriminates them from all the others and how to personalize and tailor a therapy to them. And there is much more uh, genetic variation in our body's microbiota, both in the lower gut and in the respiratory tract, than there is in the host. Um, and I, I think what's been really exciting to me in the past decade is a lot of what we thought were intrinsic features of these diseases, so disordered immune responses or uh, mechanisms of tissue injury, um, correlate quite strongly with variation in the body's microbiota. So it's, it's an intriguing hypothesis that a lot of what we've been taking for as, as, as key features of a disease are actually secondary consequences of an upstream source, which is disordered microbiota. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big claim that will take a whole lot of research to support. But that's why I'm so excited is that there's this whole kingdom of the tree of life or more than one kingdom of the tree of life that has not really been baked into our disease models. Um, and we're having to revisit a lot of old assumptions. Very nice. You know, and that kind of sort of segues, what current topics do you think should we be paying attention to either in 16S microbiome or other omics of the lung that we, we can sort of translate into sort of clinical outcomes for our, our human subjects or patients? I guess I'll give two answers. On the, on the methodology side, uh, which is sort of where you live with, I, I, I still think there's very much a role for the 16S RNA gene sequencing. So the 
the workhorse microbiome sequencing technique that we've all used for years. We can still learn a lot from it. It's still cost efficient. Uh, and, it, and in the short term, it isn't going anywhere. But um, it has limitations. I mentioned it was never meant for clinical, clinically relevant turnaround. Uh, it also is quite restrictive as far as what it actually tells you about the microbes. You know, it's restricted to about the genus level of taxonomic classification. It tells you nothing about the resistance potential of the bugs. Um, it, I think we're approaching a time where it's become more feasible and more affordable to do metagenomic sequencing. Um, and that is going to make us uh, a lot smarter about what we're working with. We're going to, it's, it's like moving from an era where all you had on the host immune characterization side was just, you have neutrophils, lymphocytes, maybe T cells and B cells to um, flow cytometry or single cell sequencing. Um, we, we're going to get much more precise and particular as far as knowing what we're working with. That's on the methodology side. Um, on the sort of biologic and clinical side, what to look forward to. I think one recurring theme across diseases in recent years is the prognostic importance of the microbiome. So there's now, it's now an old story, I think there's four papers showing that the lung microbiome predicts outcomes in IPF. So idiopathic right. pulmonary fibrosis, so a devastating progressive fibrotic lung disease that was never really thought to be microbially mediated in the past. It's now been shown multiple times, multiple groups, multiple sequencing platforms, that the, micro, the lung microbiome predicts who's going to die or have a rapid disease progression. Um, similar story in um, predicting bronchiectasis exacerbations, predicting COPD mortality. This is the paper we just published showing that um, uh, the lung microbiome predicts 28-day outcomes in critically ill patients. This is a collaboration with Louis Voss uh, from uh, the Netherlands. So yeah. that's been a common theme is that the lung microbiome, even when you control for severity of disease and comorbidities and culture-based detection of the microbiota, is an independent predictor of outcomes. So that has got our attention. And the next question now is, does that mean it's a modifiable risk factor? Does that mean it's a target? Is there something that we can do about it? And there's a whole lot of work that I could expound on if you want me to. Um, but that's, that's what I think the challenge for the next decade is, is can we modulate the microbiome uh, for the benefit of our patients? Yeah, I, I do kind of want to hear about your thoughts regarding the issue of modifiable targets and sort of the next steps in lung microbiome research. Where do you see the field heading in the next five to 10 years? Is, is it going to be still prospective outcomes-based research or are we going to really see about targeting these risk factors and maybe changing the way the microbiome or the micro lung microbiota interacts with us. Yeah. Well, I can tell you what we need to do, whether we can pull it off in the next five, 10 to year, five to 10 years, I'm not sure. We need to be much smarter and more targeted in how we manipulate the microbiome, both of the lung and the gut. The analogy I make is that, you know, if the year is 1972 and you think someone has an immune disorder, you didn't have many options. It was basically steroids or a handful of um, uh, steroid surrogates. Flash forward to now, we have all these exquisitely particular monoclonal antibodies and we can we can modulate the immune response in a very specific tailored way. When it comes to the microbiome, we have antibiotics and we have probiotics uh, and, and we have these sort of hygiene maneuvers, uh, which are extremely, the term I've heard used recently that I like, I think critiques uh, uh, things that was blunderbuss interventions. These are very clumsy, broad and non-specific interventions. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think we have a lot of work to do as far as uh, intervening with, a, with, a, with more of a scalpel than a, a cudgel. Um, yeah. 
on the other side, as far as prospective trials, um, what I would like to see is that if you if we are doing randomized controlled trials of patients with respiratory disease or critical illness, I would like us to think of the lung and gut microbiota as a key secondary outcome. So we should be sampling patients um, at the time of randomization, so before they get the intervention, and we should be sampling them at some defined time point afterwards. The key questions we should be asking is, are does heterogeneity of baseline microbiota predict who's going to respond? So is the microbiome participating in heterogeneity of treatment effect? And two, uh, is benefit in any way attributable to modification of the microbiome? So the mediation analysis and ask if we could predict benefit retrospectively based on what were the, what were the consequences of the intervention on the microbiome. Um, and that's, that's, it's a, that, would, that would get us a big step closer towards making an actual causal argument for the microbiome's role in disease pathogenesis. Right, right. And in, in, in part, in parcel to sort of moving forward, how about in terms of future challenges that you can predict moving forward in the field of the lung microbiome? Where do you think we fail as uh, researchers, but where do you also see uh, where we excel at in terms of things like studying timing, studying sampling? I think a problem we're going to fix, I think until recently, the problem has been sampling and sequencing. Um, the respiratory tract is hard to, harder, harder to sample than lower GI tract. Um, and sequencing has been impractical and expensive and time intensive and uh, informatically demanding. I think we're approaching a point where if you get me a respiratory specimen or if you get me a, a lower gut specimen, um, there will be available pipelines and platforms so that you can generate pretty dense metagenomic community data quickly. So within an hour, you can do this. If you give me a rectal swab from an ICU patient now, we can generate quarter gigabase pairs worth of, of metagenomic sequencing in under an hour. Um, mm -hmm. We actually don't have um, processors and alignment protocols that will uh, process that sequencing data uh, as fast as it's generated. In other words, we can generate the sequencing data faster than we can make sense of it. And that's not even touching on the what you do with it clinically. Um, and I think pretty soon that's going to be the real limiting step, is if I can give you a, a faithful real-time characterization of your patient's gut and respiratory microbiota with metagenomic resolution, um, will you know what to do with it? And I, I think the answer is probably no. So um, pretty soon, I think we are going to need the clinical science to catch up with the technology. That's true. I mean, no, right now, no in terms there. yeah, I mean, right now with the fecal microbiome, microbiota transfers, we're starting to see some of the positives and negatives of these trials. And especially in some some of, the, some of the pitfalls are that, you know, we can't screen for every single strain of bacteria. And there was these case reports of recently people who got FMTs or fecal microbiota transfers who received a very resistant form of E. coli. And I think that some of the identification issues and clinical applicability in terms of the lung microbiome, I, I agree, are highly, highly uh, lacking for, for applicability. I, I think that um, some of the research you've been focusing on has really addressed these issues. Um, you know, in some of the um, 
some of what I wanted to ask you was, you know, in terms of your recent paper, where do you see the the applicability of your your current uh, publication uh, describing the the things like lactosparaceae in the lower airway? So. What was exciting to me about that paper, and again, this is a collaboration with uh, Lou and Boss uh, from uh, Netherlands. Um, and, and just briefly, this was, this was a decently sized population of mechanically ventilated patients. They had a variety of underlying diseases, but they were all critically ill. Um, and they sampled their lower respiratory tract. These were mini BALs, so, so um, tall, small volumes of lung lavages. And what we found was that baseline variation in their lung bacteria, uh, most Prominently, the burden, so the number of bacterial genomes we detected by, by proper digital PCR, right. and the identity, so the, the specifically enrichment with, with lower gut uh, associated bacteria was predictive of bad outcomes. Um, so, and even when you controlled for patch scores and, and severity of illness. Um, immediate clinical implications, none. Uh, that's, that's, this is not actionable in terms of uh, is it going to change my practice? Um, mm -hmm. the, the consolation prize would be, hey, it's another prognostic factor. If it's something that we could, we could potentially measure, measure in real time to inform our prognostic uh, counseling of patients, that would be something. But what we really want is for this to be something that we can modify. I, I can't modulate the patient's genome, but I can potentially modulate the genome of the three pounds of bacteria on a minute body. Uh, and that's what would be um, very exciting about this. That said, it's, it's easier said than done. We, we certainly know that antibiotics, systemic antibiotics, inhaled antibiotics, they, they do have consequences on the identity of bacteria, but no one has shown that antibiotics change the lung burden, so lung bacterial burden, which is across studies, uh, most consistent signal poor prognosis. Um, and it's not ironed out whether these, these things we can measure now are really in the causal pathway of what's making these patients die or if it's just mm -hmm. an epiphenomenon. It's an artifact of some aspect of severity that we're not measuring. Um, the, the other specific um, implication of that study is that we again found, and this is, this is now the third study to find this, in the lower respiratory tract of critically ill patients, gut bacteria that really shouldn't be there. Right. Um, and this is a very old idea that when you're, when you're critically ill, when you're in shock, your gut wall gets permeable and you have translocation of gut bacteria to the lungs, either via the lymphatics, mesenteric lymphatics, uh, or the portal circulation. Um, this is now three studies that have found lower gut bacteria are present in the lungs of critically ill patients and associated with ARDS, and um, in this case, predictive of bad outcomes. Um, that excites me because I think gut translocation is a potential mechanism of pathogenesis that we're really not targeting right now. Um, the Dutch arguably are, are targeting it because they use selective decontamination of the digestive tract, which is another topic unto itself. Um, yeah. But right now in our clinical trials for sepsis and ARDS, um, we, we tend to, we're very immunocentric and we look at it as a disordered immune response. Um, and to my mind, things like targeting gut wall integrity or the kinds of things that you and your group at NYU are studying can actually modulate the respiratory microbiome. Um, these are exciting to me because I think they're they're relatively novel um, and have biologic plausibility. Right. I, I was thinking about that as well. And 
to me, when I read your paper, I felt that the gut permeability issue stood out as one of those factors. I know in your nature microbiology paper, you studied a sequel ligation and puncture model in mice, but you know, in your recent publication, you controlled for things like sepsis and pneumonia. So yeah. you really ended up with a nice signal that very strongly correlated with gut microbiota in the lung of people with a acute respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah. That said, do you think that that changes our perspective on the pathogenesis of ARDS or is it part and parcel the same sort of leaky phenomenon of disease? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a ARDS is a leaky phenomenon, right? It's, it's leaking the lung. Why, why wouldn't the gut be leaky too? No, your, your point is a very good one. And, and um, as you point out in that Nature Microbiology paper, our primary murine model is sequelation of puncture, but we also use systemic endotoxin. And this is something right. that we've seen as well is that that also results in the translocation of the same types of gut bacteria and the lungs that we see in, uh, in sequelation of puncture. You're right, this human cohort, we found it. And in um, another article in the Blue Journal from a year ago from Carolyn Calfee's group, uh, Ariana Panzer was the first author. They also found right. that the strongest microbiologic signal or a, a correlate for ARDS or predictor of ARDS, I should say, in the, in the trauma population was the presence of uh, an enterobacteriaceae taxon, taxonomic group that was nearly identical to the same one we found in this study. So I agree. I think this is um, a pretty consistent study signal now across both human and animal models. And it's, um, like I said, it's a very old idea. There are people studying gut lung translocation back in the 1950s, um, but it's not the focus of a lot of research energy at the moment. And right. maybe this work will reignite that spark. Yeah, well, one can hope. Um, just switching gears, who do you, who do you, whose research are you interested in currently that you know, in the in the lung microbiome sphere, is there are there people's research that you're looking very excitedly over? I know we sort of do different things, but are there other researchers that you're you you would like to promote or tell us to look into? Uh, yeah, there, I mean, it's a it's an exciting field, and partly because it's such a young field and it's a it's a growth industry, and um, there's there's plenty of space and plenty of uh, questions that need to be answered. As far as specific names and centers and projects, I think what's exciting for me is that I was part of sort of the first generation of trainees who were coming up learning these techniques. So if you went back a decade ago or not quite that, uh, and you looked at the early lung microbiome sessions at ACS, you would find, you know, Phil Molino from uh, uh, Imperial College, Leo Segal from NYU, me from the University of Michigan. Um, and here in 2020, uh, we all now have our, our own trainees doing their own exciting work and, and we're in more of a sort of like senior uh, guidance role. So uh, that to me is a very satisfying thing is to see a new generation come along with fresh ideas and often with, with novel approaches, whether it comes to new, new ways to think about animal modeling or integration with metabolomics or, or, uh, or single cell sequencing. Um, but no, I, I think um, it's, it's a field that right now has more questions in need of answering than bodies and brains on the job. Um, so I, I have a very welcoming approach to it. I, I think anyone with the means and access to mentorship uh, and expertise uh, should, should come in. No, that's great advice. I know, I know you mentioned Dr. Uh, Gary Hofnagel as one of your initial mentors who got you mm -hmm. excited and into the microbiome. Were there other folks that you would point 
to that really inspired you or got you even into research as a, as a fellow or a trainee? Yeah, um, before fellowship, I had dabbled in research. Um, I had done a bit of work with Scott Palmer doing lung transplant work at Duke. I worked with Rob Lenny and Randy Curtis at the University of Washington. Um, and and they, they all gave me a sense that this is something I want to do. I liked, I liked the spirit of academic inquiry. Um, but it was really getting to Michigan, having mentorship from Gary, having co-mentorship from Ted Stanford. So I had a, I think often um, successful mentorship comes by, not by committee, but by teams or by, by important intersections. So I, I learned my microbiologic analyses from Gary Huffnagel and John R. Downward, who was in the lab at the time. Um, but then my ARDS pathophysiology from Ted Stanford. Um, but Michigan has been an exciting place for lung microbiome, lung microbiome research along the way. Uh, Jeff Curtis was a, a senior faculty who um, was extremely supportive uh, in my early career uh, in terms of helping me think clear clinically about how to sample the healthy lung uh, microbiome. Um, uh, we have been fortunate to, I mean, Michigan's just an outstanding place both for critical care research, pulmonary research, and for microbiology and microbiome research. So. Um, I've really benefited from being at the intersection of all this and the center of that Venn diagram. That's great. Um, I, I guess, um, what was the best advice someone gave to you when you started out? And what would your advice be for people who are looking to do research in the microbiome or research in general? The best advice I received was probably to prioritize mentorship over the specifics of a project to not think that the ultimate question that's gonna grab you is gonna be clear on day one. And instead to put yourself in an institution where you have access to multiple outstanding mentors across the research spectrum of, of methodological and clinical or biological expertise. Um, and the, the career navigation and support and advocacy that you get from a mentor is at the end of the day more important than whether the specifics of the science behind the project that you're undertaking um, thrill you, uh, in part because science changes pretty quickly. Um, so I, I make the point that you know I've, I've launched my career studying a phenomenon that did not exist when I was applying for med school or residency, and barely exists when I was applying for fellowship. So um, that was, I think, sound advice that um, I would, I would uh, probably pass on to others. I'm not sure I have anything smarter to, to convey than that. No, that's excellent. I, I think that's the same advice I was given. It matters almost more who your mentors are than the things that you're, you're trying to study. Of course, the science is important, but also who shapes your career. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I think you've got to have faith that there's still really important unanswered questions wherever you look, if you just right. look through the light lens and look close enough. So um, align yourself with the right people and the right resources, and then um, be curious and you will find something that excites you at the end of all that. All right. I, I think um, with that, I just want to say there's a few other questions that come up with the microbiome, but I think let's focus a little more on the mentorship. In terms of sort of searching for mentorship, what are some of the qualities that you looked for when you were looking for a mentor? And what are some of the qualities you think you embody as a mentor for your, for your trainees? Sorry to put you on the spot, Bob. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. These are, these are critical questions. And, uh, and 
I don't know that I have great one-liner answers for them. I think um, maybe I'll start with the with the end of your question because I have my my lab and my research group have grown faster than I anticipated, uh, and I'm now doing more mentorship than I uh, foresaw myself doing even even two or three years ago. So I think the the advice I'm trying to give people and and follow myself is to really be honest with yourself and your and your mentees about your bandwidth and your time and to not overcommit um, and and to to really be frank with your trainees or from the mentees perspective with your mentor that there really has to be some congruence between the mentees wishes and the mentors as well um, i I would love to say that I can support any mentee that comes knocking on my door, uh, regardless of his or her vision. Um, but the reality is it, it has to contribute to the overall vision of the lab and our mission and uh, in, in a very practical way, uh, funding the next grant proposal and getting the next paper published and keeping the lights on. Um, so I think I, I, I'm, I'm as much an idealist as you'll find, um, but I, I think I've learned that I have to be um, pretty calculating and pragmatic when it comes to being honest with my trainees of if I took on another one right now, would I really have time to meet with them weekly? If they gave me a draft of a manuscript, uh, would I get it back to them in a few days, a few weeks, or a few months? Uh, these are the kinds of uncomfortable questions that I'm uh, forcing myself to ask and answer with, with my mentees now. Um, and I guess I'll use that as the answer in, uh, from the mentee side as well as far as uh, looking for one. Ask, make sure that those are the kinds of important practical questions. Yeah, time management and dedication to sort of moving the ball forward yep. in terms of research and your commitments is key. I, I'm learning that as well, and it is critical to knowing your limits and knowing where other people's limits are. And um, yeah, that's very good advice. I'm just going to sort of sum up our talk today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or anything else you feel like we've missed? Well, I could go on indefinitely, but I think we've covered a lot of good stuff. No, thank you so much for your time. Sure. And sort of in summary, we discussed, you know, where the lung microbiome is headed, where the research pitfalls are, the strengths of our research. We discussed a little bit about your recent publications um, with the lung microbiota in ARDS. It's very exciting. Um, we discussed um, our sort of ideals behind mentorship and who our mentors were and important lessons behind mentorship and research. And I, I just want to say thank you for your time and uh, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the Lung Science Podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcast, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.